Tonight, we are going to study how to study the Bible. Before I pray and we commence our study, though, I want to uh, draw your attention to a couple things. On the one hand, when you come in, we ask that you do one of two things. We ask that you stop at that table right as you come in and mark your attendance. It's a way for us to track all of the ministry. Students are all checked in. Children are all checked in. It's you adults that kind of get to come, come and go as you please. It helps us for tracking purposes for you to mark your attendance down. And at that table, you will find note sheets. I want to encourage you, exhort you to grab those note uh, sheets. You'll need them. I'm going to cover a lot of content every night. And that note sheet is our guide. Now, here's the good news. That note sheet will also be in slide form behind me on that screen up there. So you can follow along a little bit there as well. But I encourage you, you will get the most out of this class if you got a note sheet, a Bible, and a pen. If you haven't taken notes since college, now's the time to pick back up that, uh, that discipline. Take notes tonight and over the next several weeks. We publish them in this half-sheet form with the three-hole punch so that you can put them in a little binder. We actually sell these binders at cost in our resource center, which is on the way out, if you'd like to collect them. Of course, you can slide them in your Bible, but the truth of the matter is we all know bulletins and notes that you slide in your Bible, they disappear after a couple weeks. Do they not? Can I borrow this, Wayne? This Wayne has been doing... Man, he's got all the note sheets. You've been coming faithfully, haven't you? This is the foundation's notebook that can fit all of those notes. So if you'd like it, it honestly, if you come for a couple years, you will genuinely, I'm not exaggerating this, you will have a seminary education spelled out as simply as I know how in this notebook. So I would encourage you to make use of that resource. Okay, tonight we're going to study how to study the Bible because it is my assumption that so many of you in this room are just a little insecure about this subject. How many of you hold up this book? And, and you know this is the Bible. It's the word of the living God. You've, you hear both Clint and I week after week hold this book up and say, Thus saith the Lord. You believe with every fiber of your being that it is God who inspired this book. Which just consider for a moment the miracle of that statement. This book I hold in my hands contains the very words of the uncaused cause, the unmoved mover, the almighty Yahweh, the creator of heaven and earth, the one who was before all things, in, him, in whom all things hold together. This is God who has spoken to you. And so I trust you own a Bible, if not multiple copies. You probably revere it. This is a treasure to you. Many of you would probably have one you're ready to pass down to another generation. It is a precious gift to you Despite all of that, though, have you found it to be true that despite your high view of this book, you yawn at it when it comes time to reading it? How many of you have found you get this resolve? You want to read it. It's a new year, new you. I'm going to be a man or a woman of the word. And you start strong in Genesis, and it gets a little slower when there's that crazy chapter, 37, and... A girl gets raped, and you're thinking, this is, I don't know what to do with this. How is this devotional? Then you get to Exodus, and it starts interesting because you remember the Prince of Egypt movie, and you can kind of put all the pieces together with the Exodus, but then it gets to the laws, and you're like, this isn't telling me anything. And then you get to Leviticus, and you give up. White flag, I'm not getting anything out of this. How many of you find when you read the Bible, you're thinking, I know that this is clearly speaking to somebody, 
But why is this not speaking to me? Why am I not getting anything out of this? Why, why, why am I not finding this as fruitful as so many other people do? And this is leading me to the first point tonight that I really want to seal to your soul. This is a true statement, and you're going to be like, well, Kyler, that's not a terribly profound one. We didn't need to come to foundations to learn this, but I'm going to just point out the elephant in the room. The first thing I want you to note tonight is that studying the Bible, understanding the Bible really is hard. That's the first thing I want you to note tonight. It is hard. It's not just hard for some people. It's, it's hard for everybody. And I wonder if you have one of these reasons quietly in the recesses of your mind that's leading you to conclude it's just too hard for me. I, I wonder how many of you tonight would admit the Bible just often feels irrelevant to me. Every time I study the Bible, it, it feels like it's not really practical. I, I, I hear these self-help kind of TED Talks and I get something from it. But when I read the Bible, I, I just don't really understand what this has to do with my, my life. I'm, I'm not getting, do you realize, Kyler, that I run a company, I've got to make payroll? Do you realize, Kyler, I'm a mother with several children in my home? I've got to change diapers and that devotion did nothing for me. It is not helping me do what I have to do to function as a person with respect in this society. It just feels irrelevant. Or maybe your hidden suspicion is that you just feel like the Bible is, for lack of a better word, it's inaccessible to you. You don't feel smart enough. You're thinking, Kyler, I don't have the degrees you have. I didn't do all the schooling the pastors did. I, I'm just, I'm a lay person. I don't know Greek. I don't know Hebrew. I barely know much theology. I, I can't get stuff out of this. I'm not even a great reader. You'd be ashamed, Kyler. I've probably read maybe one book, if that, since high school. I'm just, this isn't for me. I'm not good at this. Maybe the Bible for you feels a little, dare I say, unnecessary. You feel like, okay, wait a minute. Isn't that your job to understand and explain the Bible to me? Don't we pay you, preacher, to do this? You went through all the school. You know the Greek. You know the Hebrew. You've studied and been tested on all the theology and church history. Aren't you supposed to be the one that takes all this together? Aren't you supposed to be the one that cuts up the meat so that I can digest it? You're telling me that i got to cook my own meal? I want to go out to eat. That's why I come to church, so that you can serve me like a waiter. I don't want to have to cook my, for myself at home. Maybe it feels to you like, I don't know, that am I really? I mean, it seems kind of silly for me to try to study it myself because you're always going to know more than me. I'll just come hear what you have to say. Maybe that's your secret suspicion. Or I wonder how many of you tonight would say, I don't want to admit it out loud, but it kind of feels like the Bible just really isn't all that important, studying it anyway. Do you realize how many urgent things I have in my life? There are so many demands that are placed on me. Kyla, you wouldn't understand it. You're a preacher. What do you do anyway? Y'all, don't you only work on Sunday? What else do you have going on? You realize how much I have to do? There's just a, I know the Bible's good, but if you only knew, it's, I'm lucky to have one minute to myself before the kids get out the door, and then i got to go to work. And then when we get home, it is just an absolute marathon till they're in bed, and it's all my husband and I can do. It's all my wife and I can do to just sit there and in a catatonic state vegetate in front of Netflix before we're out, and it's rinse and repeat. I, I, I just don't know that this is really something that I can prioritize, at least at this stage of my life. Do you, do you feel like... The Bible is somehow, some way, unnecessary to you? 
I wonder how many of you would say, Kyla, I don't want anybody to know this. I don't even want my spouse to know this. But quietly, if I were honest, I'd have to admit that the Bible feels unreliable to me. When I read the Bible, my faith isn't strengthened. It's actually strained. I start reading the Bible and I think, Jonah, I don't know that that's possible. I start noticing what I perceive to be discrepancies and I start wondering, well, can you trust this book? The truth is, Kyler, every time I read the Bible, I leave with more questions than I leave with answers. It's, it doesn't seem to be strengthening my faith. If anything, every time I try to study the Bible and understand it, I feel like I understand less of it. I feel like I leave with just with more doubt in my mind. Is, is that you? And then lastly, let's say, despite all of those things, you have nevertheless given it a good faith effort. And you're like, I am going to persevere. I want to be a man or a woman of this word. I want to understand it. And so you start doing it, and guess what happens? You open the Bible, and it is like one foreign world to you. You ever been to another country that speaks another language? One of the most isolating, nerve-wracking experiences is to be in another country where English is not spoken by almost anybody. Because you feel utterly isolated alone. Everything is foreign. You don't know left from right, up from down. You wouldn't know how to order a cheeseburger if you wanted one. This is the feeling so many people have when they read the Bible because the truth of the matter is, it is a foreign book. It is a book that is set in a foreign time. It's as recent as 2,000 years ago and as late as some 6,000 plus years ago. This is far removed. Just imagine how uh, distant it feels to like analyze the 1920s. That was only 100 years ago. Now imagine trying to grapple what it was like to live some 2,000 to 6,000 years ago. It's a foreign time. The culture is so radically different than ours. When you read the Bible, a lot of stuff doesn't make sense because we would never do that in our culture. The thought of what's called a leveret marriage, where if a, a brother dies, then that wife automatically goes to another brother, is like, what? What do we do with that? It's, it seems perverse. You, you, it's a completely different culture. I, I don't have any ability to relate here. It's a different geography. First time I went to Israel, uh, it was like 2005, 2006. George W. Bush was president. I do remember that because he was about to come when I went, and there was a lot of anti-American violence uh, as I was there. It was an amazing experience for me because at last I got to see with my own two eyes what I had been reading for years in the Bible. It all of a sudden brought to life what was a foreign geography. Imagine if I spent the next hour talking in detail about my home and none of you have been there. The truth of the matter is it would become far more understandable, visual for you if you just said, you know what, Kyler, stop talking about it and just invite me over. And I could take a look, and now I got it. I got the picture. It's the foreign geography. It's completely different than Charlotte, North Carolina. And then lastly, the reason the Bible is just so stinking foreign to us is because, well, I mean, it's in a foreign language that's written originally in Hebrew in the Old Testament with a little bit of uh, Aramaic and then Greek and Aramaic in the New Testament as well. Those are not languages probably any of us know, any of us are fluent in. And the English translations are just that. It's a translation. So there's, very, there's different ones because there's different theories on how to interpret these words. And so you're thinking, how am I supposed to study this? Because I'm studying it in the NIV, but the ESV says something different, and then the NASB says something different than that, and I don't know what that Greek even says, and I don't know what that Hebrew says. I can't make any sense of any of this. The Bible is just foreign. How many of you 
can admit coming into this that, Kyler, one of the reasons why, despite my high view of this book, despite coming to a church that upholds this Bible and exposits it week in, week out, nevertheless, this book just collects dust so often at my home. The reason is because the truth is it's just hard. I I don't know how to do this. Let me just, by way of illustration, exhort you. It is hard. But I don't want to be like too condescending here. This is really more for me than anybody. It is akin to your child. My little girl, Eliza, most of you know, she's five years of age. She's being homeschooled by my wife. So every morning when I leave, I see my wife sitting at our dining room table with Eliza. And it's usually, I wouldn't say it's a fight, but it's not like roses. It's, you know, she's got a strong will and she thinks things are harder than they really are. So she's reading a word. And the word is... uh, I think it was stop, S-T-O-P, and she knows how to read that word. But she was struggling through it, trying to sound it out. Stop, stop, I can't, I don't know how to read, or something like that. Now the truth is, should she in her infant flesh at that moment wants to give up and go play with blocks in the other room. But my wife makes her persevere because she knows she can get this. And how often am I like little Eliza? where I am standing before God's Word, and as a pastor who's done a lot of education in this book, there are several times, almost every single sermon I've ever preached at Hickory Grove, at some point in my study, I want to turn in my Bible and not be a preacher anymore. There's so many points where I think, I'm no good at this. How can this church possibly listen to me preach? I don't know what this means, and I don't know how on earth I'm going to make this clear to our people. It's, it's a common fleshly tendency until you remember You just put a little bit of sweat equity into this, and it is astounding what you can overcome, and it is possible. That doesn't mean my final point today, but before we get to that point, I do want to draw your mind and heart to one other thing, because lest you think this is just a sales pitch, and I'm like, you know what? It's hard, but you should try. Just try harder. Be like Eliza and persevere through spelling out the word stop. I also want to say with the full weight and authority of the Bible that not only is understanding studying the Bible hard, that's true. But it is also necessary. Indeed, it is commanded. Could have put a finer point on that. This is not something that's optional. This this is not something just for the foundations crowd. This is a small representation of Hickory Grove. There's probably 120, 30, I don't know how many folks in here, I didn't count. But that's a small representation of the 2,500 that were at church just this past Sunday. This is not just a command to you who are motivated in the midst of a hurricane to show up here and learn how to study it. It's actually a command for each of us. And so let's go through some of the reasons why the Bible is so essential for us, so so critical, so necessary for us to study. Well, one of them is because studying the Bible is the way we spiritually grow. Mark in your margin, 1 Peter 2 and verse 2. You may know this verse says, like newborn babies, long for the pure milk of the Word, that by it you may grow in respect to salvation. Now, there's an imagery and a reason in this verse. What's the imagery? You and I are like a baby. The Bible says it. We are akin to an infant that is longing for the milk. And the verse is, in essence, saying, 
as a believer with the Spirit of God within you, you should, in your redeemed nature, you should long to know the Bible like a baby longs for milk. It's actually the way God has wired you. And any inclination you have towards the contrary, watch this. It's not that you're not hungry. All of you are starving, spiritually speaking. It's that you are getting your hunger satiated, so to speak, in other things. Now, here's the truth. You're feasting your soul on cotton candy. This is me. So when I say you, I'm including me here. We are so prone to nourish, though it's not actually nourishing, we're so prone to feed our spiritual hunger on that which will never satisfy. It might be your pet vice. It might be your favorite TV evangelist. And I say that pejoratively. I say that negatively. There are a lot of guys out there that are easy to listen to. They are gifted orators. They are skilled at speaking on TV, and they are telling you nothing. You go watch what they have to say, and it is straight garbage, but it tastes like cotton candy because it tickles the ears. It's, it's palatable. It's easy to swallow. It, it feels at least initially like it's relevant, but the truth is it's actually not the Bible. It's just self-help. It, Jesus did not have to die for whatever that guy said to be true. You need to be nourished on that which alone will satisfy. What parent in this room would give their child cotton candy every night for dinner? Now, if you did, your child would think you are the bee's knees. They would love it if you did. But any loving parent knows that a child that feasts on cotton candy every night is going to wither. They're going to be ill. So too, you and I, there is a good God who is calling us to nourish our souls on the pure milk of God's Word. Now, why? The verse says that you may grow. If you want to grow spiritually, how many of you come to church because you want to change? You know, I hate the sins I struggle with. I hate the constant tension in my marriage. I hate this, that, and the other that is, that is attacking my home. And so you come to church because you're hoping that coming to church is going to do a miraculous, transformative, converting work within you. But then you, you realize You've been going to church for years. You hear preaching. It's good. You have this little shot, but it withers by Monday. And you feel that over a long period of time, you actually haven't grown that much. You don't feel like there's been a whole lot of change in the home. And it is largely because so many of us are fasting throughout the week spiritually that we are drinking of the pure milk of God's Word for an hour on Sundays, and we are abstaining from it for the rest of the week, and it is yours for the taking. There is a plentiful supply from our good God to you, and if you will just take of this milk, watch yourself grow by it. Now, here's the trick. Most of us in this room are impatient, if you're anything like me. How many of you have had a good devotion? You have it, and you feel like the Lord is near. It feels like communion. The next day, it doesn't, and you're kind of wigged out by it, and you're thinking, well, how do I get back to that? I liked that, and this is nothing. And then the next day, you're not really feeling it. The next day, you're not really feeling it, and you're thinking, well, this is a waste. I'm not really getting anything out of this. I'm not growing. I'm not changing. A good analogy, I don't want to extend the analogy too far, but I've used this before. A good analogy would be, how many of you in this room, when you go to the gym for the first time, walk out of there looking like the Incredible Hulk? If only that were possible. Y'all think that I would look like Clint Presley tomorrow if I went and worked out tonight? If only it were that easy. But here's the truth. If I persisted 
though I'm sore. By the way, I have started to do this. I've started to lift like four weeks ago, and I'm sore every day and a little grumpy because of it. If I keep up with this, and it's any man's guess if I will, six months from now, you'll notice a change. I'm not going to notice it tomorrow. In fact, I'm probably going to feel like a little worse. I'm going to hate being sore. I'm going to have all these battles about this is a waste of my time, and I don't want to do this, and here's all the reasons why I'd be better if I just did what I always did. But over time, you're going to see a change. And I want you to see by analogy, so too in your study of God's Word, you are not going to naturally feel an immediate change. But over time, as it would be with working out, you are going to slowly but surely begin to see the Lord grow you, change you from the inside out. Oh, take it to the bank. It is essential for spiritual growth. Secondly, I want you to note, though, it is necessary or essential for spiritual maturity. Maturity. I want you to consider with me uh, probably my favorite passage in all the book of Hebrews. Hebrews 5 and verse 11 and following. It is that famed little uh, interlude in the book of Hebrews. When you read Hebrews, it's confusing. It starts talking about angels and about this high priest, and then it starts talking about this dude named Melchizedek. And you don't know who he is, where he's from, what he's about. You're lost. And then all of a sudden, in the middle of the writer of Hebrews explaining to us who Melchizedek is, he pauses. And in chapter 5 and verse 11, it's like he gets interrupted. And he stops and he says, you've become dull of hearing. You can't even understand what I'm saying to you. You should be teachers by now. But you need somebody to teach you again all the elementary principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. Everyone who partakes only of milk is not accustomed to the word of righteousness. He's just a baby. But solid food's more for the mature, who because of practice have their senses trained. In other words, the writer of Hebrews has said essentially this. You should know this by now. You've been walking with the Lord for years. You don't know it, which proves to me that you haven't been growing. You haven't been maturing. Do you want to know what the sign of maturity is? There is one word I mentioned in that verse, which is critical for maturity. It's not knowing, though that's true. you got to know things. Your child needs to learn things to mature. If a child is never educated, they will not in any realistic, meaningful sense mature. They may mature physically. They may mature in certain social ways, but they will not mature holistically. There is one word, though, that defines for us what it really means to mature spiritually. It is those who practice what they have been taught. It is, a, it is one who is not merely a hearer of the word, but a doer of the word. If you want to grow spiritually, you need to learn how to understand the Bible so that you can leave any verse you have read and answer this question. You want to know what question most of us try to answer when we read the Bible? What? What did that mean? That's a good question. If you don't know the answer to that, you haven't gotten much out of it. But that is not the last question you need to ask. Don't stop at the what. Ask one more question before you close the Bible. And if you can answer this question, watch yourself grow in maturity. It is not merely what. Ask the question, so what? You ever thought about that before? One of the reasons the Bible leaves us just so bleh sometimes is because we never actually ask, well, so what? What's the point of this? Why did God reveal this to me? 
Why has this been transcribed through the ages for me to hear? Why is it here? So what? Answer that so what, because when you do, it will inform how you shall then live. It will inform how you shall practice what has been preached to you. It will afford you then the freedom and opportunity to at last grow mature spiritually. My friends, you need to learn to study the Bible. Understand it. It's essential for your spiritual growth. It's essential for spiritual maturity. And thirdly and finally, I just want you to note with me that it's also essential for, dare I say, spiritual effectiveness. This is, in other words, how you're going to actually be able to live your faith. You probably know 2 Timothy 3.16. It's a famed verse. All Scripture is breathed out by God, inspired by God. And it's useful for teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness. The Bible, in other words, is what God is using to change you. God doesn't change you through magic fairy dust. He doesn't change you through intuition. He doesn't change you through inclination. He doesn't change you through inspiring quotes. He doesn't change you through inspiring Facebook posts. He doesn't change you that way normatively. He doesn't merely change you through your spouse, though that is a potent tool of sanctification in most of our lives. The, the key way he changes a man, woman, or child is through the Bible. And if you want to be an effective tool in his hand, you have to be taught, corrected, reproved, and trained in righteousness. So give yourself to the study of God's Word, for it is necessary for you, though it be hard for you. Now, Having said all of that, I want to put an even finer point on it. This is required. Understanding the Bible is requisite for a believer, but let's talk about what kind of a person can understand the Bible. Because here's the truth. A lot of you are cynically thinking, Kyler, what you're telling me is that you need to be a good literary student. So the truth is, I feel like an English professor at UNC Charlotte is going to understand this book better than me. And I want to plead with you to hear me that there is something unique about this book, which we're going to talk about in a moment. And let's hear from the Bible itself what type of person can understand the Bible. I want you to turn in your Bible, if you have one, to 2 Timothy 2.15. It's the key verse tonight. In fact, if your child is in Awana, the acronym Awana is derived from this very verse. For this verse reads, in short, approved workmen are not ashamed. That's where the A-W-A-N-A in Awana comes from. Awana was begun in the 1950s in Chicago uh, by a gentleman who based that ministry off of this very verse. And this is, in my judgment, the key Bible verse that illuminates for us the requirement that we, we must become men and women who study the Bible. 2 Timothy 2.15, study to show yourself approved unto God a workman that has no need to be ashamed, rightly dividing or handling the word of truth. Forgive me, I recited it in the King James because I learned it in Awana in the King James some 20-some-odd years ago. Study to show yourself approved unto God. I want you to think about the type of person this verse is describing. The first thing I want you to note is the type of person that can understand the Bible is a faithful person. I want you to underscore the word workmen, either on your note sheet. By the way, I put this verse at the top of your notes tonight. Or if you have your Bible, feel free to mark in your Bible. I, in fact, I encourage you to do that. Underscore the word faithful. I mean, forgive me. Underscore the word workmen. An approved workman. Ergates in the Greek. This is literally a laborer. 
In other words, he is saying if you want to be a student of the Bible, you've got to regard yourself as a laborer or a workman, as one who is faithfully expending effort. Any laborer worth his salt is reliable, faithful, and hardworking. And this is, in other words, what God is saying. If you want to understand the Bible, you cannot sit back and expect it to be served you on a silver platter. You've got to be a workman. You've got to count the cost and be willing to pay the price to do the hard work. Underscore, secondly, the word, or the words, do your best. Spudazo in the Greek. That literally means be diligent, and you better be diligent in a hasty kind of way. In other words, he's saying not only should we be faithful, if you want to understand the Bible, you really need to be committed to this task, which is closely related to faithful, I'll grant you. You need to be committed to this. You you need to make conscientious exertion, earnest effort to understand it. If you are passive or just kind of want it to be spoon-fed to you like a documentary might, the truth is you're, you're not actually going to understand the Bible. You're always going to be parroting what somebody else says. All too often I know if somebody is not a student of the Bible when if they pray or when they talk about the Bible, they almost always talk in lyrics from famous Christian songs. Now, I don't mean that ugly because some of the song lyrics are wonderful. I often use them in sermons because they're moving and most of you know them. But if your vocabulary is more informed by Christian contemporary music than it is by the Bible, just let that be like a reminder to you, like a little bit of a red flag or a flare. Hey, I need to get my mind saturated in the Bible. It's easy to hear Christian music. It doesn't take much effort. You can listen to it while you're driving. To study the Bible, though, it's going to require work. I need to be a workman who is doing my best, an ergates that is spudazo. I am diligently trying to understand this book. i got to be faithful. i got to be committed. Here's a third word I want you to consider. If you want to understand the Bible, You need to be careful. There's a word here that you'll probably miss in the English translation. Did you notice he says, rightly handling the word of truth? You may, in your, my King James uh, recitation, rightly dividing the word of truth. Do you want to know what that word actually is? It's orthotomeo in the Greek, and that word literally means to cut a straight path, which I know means nothing to you. You're like, okay, it's clear as mud. What does that mean? How do I cut a straight path in the Bible? Imagine uh, you're a, some of you in here might be carpenters, whether you're professionally or you're just kind of an armchair carpenter on the weekend. I just built some built-in bookshelves in my home office at home. I had some Ikea bookshelves that you can buy from Ikea. I put them all in there, and then I went and got wood and made way too many trips to Lowe's because I am not a professional carpenter. Got all the stuff together, and I started to frame the thing out so it looks like it was built there. Now, the thing I had to pay closest attention to is I had to pay utmost attention to cutting the line straight for the sign of shoddy carpentry is an uh, is it an unplumb wall? Is that even a word? Is it the wall is not plumb? You need to cut that line straight. How many of you uh, who have done like, you know, even craft work recognize that if you don't cut the line straight, the whole project's messed up. That's a sign of, uh, of precision, of carefulness. So too, he's literally using this imagery and is saying, if you want to understand the Bible, you need to learn how to rightly divide it or cut it straight. So let's talk through what this actually means. 
It means you've got to learn to be a very careful student of the Bible, not being willy-nilly with it. You need to recognize that you're dealing with the things of God, and it is quite easy for you to misspeak or to read into the text something that's not there. I've used this illustration before, but it's kind of funny, uh, so it'll resonate. All too often, we read into the Bible what we think it means, but it's not actually what it means. We just project onto it. So, for example, when I was in college, I I did my first degree in Bible was actually in my undergraduate uh, years, and I was in a New Testament class, and we were studying a false gospel. So there are books out there called Gnostic Gospels or false gospels that some think should be in the Bible, but they shouldn't be. So we were reading one at one point, and as we were uh, reading this Gnostic Gospel, there was a phrase in the Gospel that one of the girls in my class said, oh, this is clearly not from the Bible. No way would Jesus have ever said this. And as I heard her say it, all of a sudden I'm like, oh no, she's about to be really embarrassed. Is the professor going to point out the elephant in the room that this is one of the few verses in the entire Gnostic gospel that's actually said by Jesus in the gospel of Luke? It was a phrase where Jesus says, I did not come bring, to come to bring peace. I came with a sword, which Jesus actually says that. And she said, Jesus would never do that. He is a God of love. It was the one instance in the whole thing where it's actually what he said. There's another time I'm in this New Testament class where we're reading, uh, uh, I forget what gospel it is and I forget the verse. I need to go look this up because I've told this story before. But there's a passage where uh, Jesus is talking about the queen of the south. Do you all know who the queen of the south is in this account? It's referencing Queen Sheba who came to Solomon. Uh, She was kind of queen of the Ethiopian region of Africa, and she came to Solomon with all of her glorious retinue. Well, he references that in the Gospels. But there was a girl in my class who in all sincerity believed that the queen of the south was a prophecy of Hillary Clinton because she reared from the south, from Arkansas, and she was, this was in the mid-2000s when I was in this college class, and she was, you know, she was a senator from New York at the time, and it was, this was well before a presidential run, but she was still really well known then. He, she firmly believed that. Now, here's the truth. I know you all are looking at me thinking, like, man, what kind of a school did you go to? <laughs> Why is she wrong? What if she's right? How do you know she's wrong and I'm right? I think it's Sheba, but, you know, I'm not God. What if it was a prophecy of Hillary Clinton? You go read the book of Isaiah, it talks about Cyrus, who was a pagan ruler. I mean, the Lord uses people who do some crazy stuff. What? Are you sure? How do I know? How do you know? That is the great question of this class. For the next few weeks, I'm going to help you understand how you can, with full assurance of faith, say categorically, unapologetically wrong. I would bet my life savings that that interpretation is wrong because there are actually some key principles of cutting straight the Bible, learning how to make a straight line and realize, you know what, that was a zigzag. That is not what this text means. We're going to study over the next few weeks how you can cut this book straight. But before we do, Before we learn to cut straight the Word of God, you need to remember one fourth and final thing. 
If you want to understand the Bible, you need to remember that you are not only one who must be faithful and committed and careful, you need to be accountable. And by that I mean you need to remember that you are one who is approved, the Bible says. Approved by who? How many of you would admit, don't raise your hands, this is rhetorical of course, that the approval you really want is from your Sunday school classmate? You don't want to sound dumb when you raise your hand. Or if you're studying the Bible at home, you don't want your child to ask you a question that you don't know the answer to, and then you look like you don't know it, so you make something up because you want to sound smart. Or you don't want to say it in front of the pastor because you sure would hate for the pastor to think little of you. Man, Kyler just made a crack about me saying something, quoting uh, songs from uh, CCM music. I don't want him to think that about me. Remember, there is but an audience of one that you stand before when it comes to understanding the Bible. You must be approved by God himself. So remember, let that sober you. Not only should it settle your soul, but it should also raise your awareness that God is watching you and that as you study this word, you are studying his very words. Let that sober you as you open the Bible day in and day out and recognize God is speaking to you and it is his approval alone that you must seek. And praise be to God, he is a God of infinite mercy, unending grace, and he is one who enables we who don't know much to understand the Bible. Here's an illustration. Do you know that when I was in college, I met a man who had the entire Bible memorized? Now, I just finished memorizing the book of Ephesians um, this week. And guys, it about killed me. (laughs) And I actually have a pretty good memory. I have a better memory than the average person. And it was hard for me. And I've already forgotten half of it. So if you tried to get me to recite the whole book of Ephesians to you, tough luck. This man had the entire Bible memorized, wait for it, in seven translations. Now, if that shocks you, this last thing I'm going to say is going to stun you. He didn't believe any of it. He was lost. He is a practicing Jew. And by that I mean he is practicing Judaism. He does not believe Jesus is the Son of God. He, in other words, misses Yahweh altogether. Because if you believe the God of the Old Testament from a Jewish lens, but you miss Jesus, the Scripture is actually clear. No man comes to the Father but through Jesus. You've missed Him altogether. You might as well be Muslim. You have misread Yahweh. He might as well be Allah to you because the God of the Old Testament is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He missed it. He didn't believe the book. And it's a good reminder to us that it's not your intelligence, your knowledge, your investment that is going to make you one who can understand the Bible. It is actually a miraculous gift of God. We actually have a word for this. We call this the illumination of the Holy Spirit. God actually works in such a way that He can enable you to understand the Bible. Do you want to know? This is going to sound like I'm exaggerating, but I mean it. Some of the most insightful insights I have ever heard on the Bible have sprung from the lips of children. I am not exaggerating when I tell you I have had profound theological conversations with kindergartners because there is a childlike innocence to their faith and they ask the question that nobody's asking. I have had, I have seen some of the godliest saints who will have the most bedazzled crowns in heaven that they throw at their Savior's feet have no education. Some of the elderly widows of our church 
who have not done a lick of school in 70 years are some of the godliest, most spiritually knowledgeable people I know, and they don't know a lick of Hebrew or Greek, and I've not done a quarter of the schooling I've done. And I should sit at their feet because ours is a God who by the power of the Spirit illuminates it, which is why every single morning when I read the Bible, I pray this verse. Mark it in your margin. Psalm 119 and verse 18. This verse springs from my lips every single day for the last 20 years. I got saved in 2001. Almost since then, I have prayed this verse. Psalm 119 and verse 18. Oh God, open my eyes to behold wonderful things from your word. Because the truth is, most mornings I wake up, my eyes are crusty, I'm tired, I want coffee, I am not feeling it. I get to the Bible and I'm like, Lord, I'm going to need you to work a miracle. Open my eyes. And he is faithful to respond to the pleas of my heart. God will illuminate this because this is no mere book. This is the next point I want to seal to your soul. Note with me that this is a unique book. Understanding the Bible really is unique. It's not like reading Shakespeare. It's not like reading the newspaper. This is a book in a league of its own. And here's why I say that. Because this book is an inspired, or forgive me, let me first note, it's a revealed text. Revealed means it came to us from somebody else. This book has been revealed by God to us. God has spoken and this communication has been inscribed in print. We have the revelation of God in book form. His chief revelation is Jesus himself, but Jesus is ascended to the Father and is interceding for us this moment until he comes again. Until that day comes, the way we can behold God is how he has revealed himself in the Bible. It's a revealed book. You can't reveal yourself like God has in your own writing. I could write a blog post. I may write a book one day. I will not be able to reveal myself in that book the way God has. He has done so in a unique way. Here's the way he's done it. He's done it. It is an inspired text. To say it's inspired means the Spirit has spoken it. It's God-breathed. 2 Timothy 3.16 says the Bible is breathed out by God. It's as if it's a flautist, one who is blowing air into a flute, and then the noise comes out. So too, the very breath of God, so to speak, has been breathed into the Bible, and the music that comes from the instrument is the inscribed text itself. The Spirit of God has breathed out these very words through the instruments of the 39 to 40 human authors that wrote the 66 books of the Bible over a period of 1,500 years. It's an amazing gift, a revealed text, an inspired text. I want you to note it's an authoritative text. It means when God says it, it matters. How many of you, when you say something to your child, now some of you may privately be thinking, Kyler, I'm ashamed to say, when I do this, my child doesn't listen to me. I tell them to do something, they completely flat ignore it. Now, if you allow that to happen, pastorally may I exhort you, don't do that anymore. You're the parent. Demand that they listen. You actually have the right. In fact, you have the biblical requirement. You have the stewardship to do so. When dad speaks in my household, Liza has to listen and obey. There is an authority that comes from my role as father where she listens When God speaks, there is an inherent authority that demands we not only pay attention, we heed. And the essence of sin is disputing or ignoring that authority that comes from that book. It's a revealed text, an inspired text. It's an authoritative text. And lastly, note, it is an inerrant text, which is a somewhat archaic word. It basically means this. You ready for it? There is not a jot 
or tittle in all the Bible that's wrong. You're thinking, what's a jot or a tittle? You all know the Bible uses that word, right? Jesus says not a jot or tittle will pass away. That's because in Hebrew, there's little markings on Hebrew letters. They're called jots and tittles. It's almost like the dot on a... uh, on an I or the crossing of a T. It's those little marks we would use in English. They use jots and tittles to help write out Hebrew language. So a jot and a tittle means every word, including the punctuation in the Bible, is without error. It proceeds from God who is perfect and does not lie. Therefore, you can trust what is said reflects who he is. So when you're understanding this book, recognize this is a unique book you're dealing with. So that leads us to our final question we really need to chew on together is, is this possible? I mean, Kyla, this is all well and good. You've told me why it's hard. Of course, none of us needed to come hear that because we all knew it was hard. You've told me why it's necessary, why it's required, why it's unique. Thanks for that. That is helpful. It's it's a good reminder. But how? How do I understand this? Because the truth is, I'm going to wake up tomorrow morning, and you know what I'm going to remember, Kyler? I'm going to remember all the reasons you told me it was hard and I'm going to curse you uh, at my kitchen table. How do you do it? How do you study the Bible? Tonight and over the next six weeks, I'm going to give you six key skills for studying the Bible. Six ways, simple things that you need to learn. And if you can learn these six skills, by the way, they are all simple. They truly are. Any of you can do this. If you can learn these six skills, it will get you so far ahead. And so in the few minutes remaining tonight, I'm going to do a little bit of interactive stuff with you. This is unlike anything I've done in Foundations before. In fact, in a moment, I'm going to turn it over to your tables to silently work on something. Ooh, what is this? This is real different. I want to begin. Don't worry. None of you are going to be embarrassed. None of you are going to have to say anything out loud. You're not even going to have to. You can be super uh, intro, uh, introverted and not talk to anybody at your table. You're literally going to work by yourself. But there are a few things I want you to consider. I want you guys to just take a look at this picture on the screen. Throw that picture up there, brother. I, if you can't see it because of the screen, I'm sorry. Stand up if you'd like. I want you guys to just take a look at it. Take a good look at it. Just observe what you see on the screen. Okay, brother, take that off. Now, I want all of you guys to take out your pen, and I want you to write down on your note sheet, by memory, as many things as you can that you observed on that picture. Go. Just write stuff down. Give you guys about a minute or so to do this. We got a little background music. Keep marking what you've observed. Okay, look back up here. Let's put that picture back up on the screen. Take a good look and feel lots of shame. Let it just heap on scorn and shame on our shoulders. How many of you, uh, by a show of hands, got at least five things right by memory? Okay, good. We had a lot. Keep your hand up. How many of you had seven things? Anybody get 10? What about 15? Well, brothers and sisters, the truth is there are dozens of things on this screen, which is a reminder to us 
that we are prone to see but not see. We're prone to look at things but not really see what we're seeing. I want you to look at one other visual. Take a look at this visual, the next one. And I want you guys to just write down on your piece of paper how many squares are on that sheet. Write that down. Give you about a minute to figure that out. Some of you guys are thinking, I see this on Facebook. I crush these sort of things. <laughs> How many squares are on that sheet? Okay, look back up. Somebody throw out a number they think are on that uh, sheet. 28. Anybody think there's more than 28? How many? You're right, Richard. There are 30 squares on that sheet. How many of you are saying, Kyla, there ain't no way there's 30 squares on that sheet? It's because we are prone to see, but not really see. You need to learn to look closer. Everybody look here, up here at me for a second. How many of you guys know how many stoplights there are between your house and your place of employment? You drive under them every day. You see them. You literally have to look at them. It's the law. How many of you guys know how many homes are on your street? You walk by them most of the time. You literally drive by those homes every day. Do you know how many are on your street? Does anybody in this room, by the way, I shouldn't even say this. I'm really glad Lauren's serving in Awana. Does anybody know what their spouse wore to church on Sunday? Y'all need to know a little peek behind the curtain in my marriage is Lauren always quizzes me to see if I remember if her hair was straight or curly at church, and I never remember. <laughs> Do you see but not really see? Does anybody know how many branches are on the tree in your front yard? You look at this tree all the time. You mow around it. You've probably trimmed it. Do you know? Folks, here's the odd truth. It is human nature for us to see but not really see. It is human nature to look, but not really look that closely. And do you want to know, this is a parable of the Bible. So many of us read verses, and we don't really see what's there. We immediately think, I'm not smart enough to understand this, and so you give up quickly. I want to invite you guys to look at one verse tonight. If you have a Bible, open with me to Acts chapter 1 and verse 8. Or you can look at it on the screen. But I encourage you, if you have a Bible, to turn to Acts 1 and verse 8. And we're going to look at this verse together. And I'm going to invite you once again to silently work at your table just for about three or four minutes, and then I'll conclude. Nobody's going to see this. You're not being quizzed. What I want you to do is I want you to look closely at this verse and look at it. And I want you to write down as many observations as you can about this verse. What do you see there? Ask questions about the words. Ask questions about what's going on. Just ask questions of this verse. Look at it closely and write down as many things as you see. You don't have to be a Bible scholar. You can know nothing about the Bible, but just look at it. What do you really see here? Give a few minutes and write down your observations, and then I'll pull you back together and we'll see how many you got. Take a look at Acts 1 and verse 8.
Okay, everybody look up here just for a moment. Time is escaping us. If I had more time, I'd give you guys five to ten minutes to look at this. The first time I studied this passage, Acts 1 and verse 8, I was given by my professor 30 minutes to observe this verse, which felt like an eternity, since we just did three minutes. And after those 30 minutes, I think I had like 40-some-odd observations. or something in that ballpark. And after those 30 minutes, and we all said what we shared, do you know what our professor said next? You guys have another hour. I want you to observe. And we're all like, what? So we went back to observing. Again, we're not smart. I didn't know half of what I know now. This is early in my college degree. I didn't know anything. So I started to observe, and I think I worked my way up to like in the upper 60s. I don't remember what it was in observations, and I was digging deep, y'all. I mean, I was acting like I knew things that I didn't really know. And you know what our professor said? He said he had done the same thing, and he had found over 300 observations. And he showed us what he meant. And you know what? All of his observations were readily apparent. I just didn't see them. Seeing, I did not see. Tomorrow morning, I couldn't say tonight because it'll be dark when you get home, I want you to go outside and look at your tree or your bush or whatever plant you got in your front yard and just sit there and look at it for a while. Like, be real awkward, like your next-door neighbor would be like, what's wrong with this dude? <laughs> just sit out there and stare at it. If you sit there and stare at your tree or bush or plant for a while, you will be astounded at what you see. Slowly look at it. Observe what you've never just really looked at before, and you will see one of the most amazing, complex things on planet earth it will make the mightiest skyscraper it will make the greatest uh, earthen dam it will make the the most amazing invention of man look like child's play when you look at the intricate wonder of that little tree if you just take a look you're going to see what you don't normally see and the first skill of reading the bible that i want you to practice this week before you come back next week is i want you to learn to see what you don't normally see tonight or tomorrow and the next several days, go find another Bible verse. Make it one you know so that it's you know, kind of interesting to you. Find John 3.16 or one of those verses that you've got hidden in your heart. And just go write it down and slow down. And don't spend 30 minutes because you might want to beat your head against the wall, but spend 10 minutes. And just go look and write down all the things you see. Here's the good thing. Write down questions. Maybe what you see is what you don't know. I don't know what that means. 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 I don't have any fat clue what that means. That's good. Those are all observations. Write all that down. Do you want to know what's going to start happening? It is amazing how much more conversant you're going to be able to be about any given Bible verse once you have slowed down and looked at it. If you can learn to just slow down and see, guess what's going to start happening? You're going to start understanding what it means when you start getting taught it. Final illustration. Most people, children, students, adults, can't understand a concept until they are visually demonstrated. Have you noticed that it helps to just see something? And once you kind of like see it at work, all of a sudden the explanation starts to make more sense. You have categories to put together. So too with the Bible. If you can learn to just slow down and see what's there, you will now just have enough familiarity with it that when you start studying it, when you start learning how to make sense of it, 
you now are so familiar, you're instantly making the connections. You're no longer the, in the first day of school. It's like you've been in school now for a few weeks, and you'll get it. So my final exhortation to you is, though it's hard, and brothers and sisters, it is hard. It's hard for me. It will be hard for each of us. I want you to persist, for it is required of you. It is necessary for you. It is a unique book. And take heart, it's possible for you to understand the Bible. The first of six skills I want you to master this seminar is learn to see. For when you do, you will begin to behold the wonderful riches of God's Word. You come back next week. I won't be here. I'm going to be on vacation next week with my wife. Blake Maxwell will come in. He's teaching my lesson that I wrote. I love this lesson. I almost wanted to change my vacation so that I could come do this lesson. We're going to show you the second skill next week on how to study the Bible. You won't want to miss it. You be sure to be back here next Wednesday. May I pray for you? And then we'll call it a night. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we confess that we are men and women who are prone to see but not see, hear but not hear, and so we're asking that through this class you would help us to open our eyes and behold wonderful things from your word. Oh, I pray that it would be like honey. It would taste sweet to our mouths. And would we be nourished and matured by it. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you guys. See you next Wednesday.